0: I know uh, since the last time I've done this, uh, a lot of people probably weren't here. Church has grown uh, quite a bit since then, and this is probably the first time some of y'all have uh, even heard me say anything to y'all. So if you want to bear with me, I'll just give you a brief introduction to who I am and uh, my small family with uh, Jalissa and myself in Rochester. Um, Y'all know when you go to maybe a friend's house and... You're there at a dinner party, and they just kind of drop this giant photo album on your lap, and you kind of feel obligated to look through the pictures because you don't want to be rude. Um, I'm going to be that guy real quick. <laughs> oh, isn't that cute? So this uh, that's my wife, Jalissa. there. Uh, we've been coming to the church, like the pastor said, uh, myself for two years. Um, I came up when I married her. She was here a year before me going to RIT. Uh, she's the one who does the uh, the beautiful uh, song interpretation from uh, um, English to sign language. And it's actually what she's majoring in, graduating in a couple of weeks. It's very exciting to be a sign language interpreter. Well, yeah, we're both very excited. School's finally over. So that's us there. And I just want to say thank you so much for uh, just being part of uh, this church family. We've gotten to know a lot of you very well, especially through... Uh, the Dinner for Eight group Sunday school, I have explored my own gifts here, been able to be encouraged, and uh, just really blessed to, to be able to exercise and explore uh, some humble ways I can serve. Angelus as well, being able to perform her sign language, it's incredibly a uh, great blessing. And. Uh, Speaking of uh, families, (laughs) yes, uh, we're going to bring another member into the church in December, so we're thoroughly excited and uh, can use all the prayer we can get. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now that I have everybody's attention, we will uh, go ahead and get started. Actually, I just want to open up in in prayer really quick here, and uh, we'll go ahead and dig into Corinthians. Heavenly Father, um, I just thank you so much for this uh, body of believers that you have uh, brought Jalissa and I into. I thank you for uh, just the vast amounts of uh, encouragement and prayer that we've been able to receive and give. I humbly ask for your presence over the the reading and the teaching and uh, receiving of your word this morning. Give us a clear heart and mind to receive whatever it is that you want us to get and uh, help us to glorify you above all else with our time here today. ask all this in your name. Amen. All right. So, this is part three of kind of a mini-series within this series. Uh, It started in chapter 8. We are wound up here in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. And within the the broader uh, theme of being saturated with the gospel of God's grace, we are looking at, in particular, lovingly limiting our freedom. And this is where we are going to be in today. Uh, Before we start digging into this, I want to just give you a brief... um, analogy or kind of a metaphor that even Paul uses in this chapter. Uh, imagine yourself as uh, an Israelite who is in Egypt, all right? As a slave. You were born into the slavery, your daddy was born into the slavery, your daddy's 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 daddy was born into slavery. This is the only life you've ever known, that of servitude and a very harsh existence. And then God finally raises up a leader, gives you Moses. And through God's miraculous intervention, the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and a whole host of miracles, you were finally brought out of Egypt and you were on your way to the Promised Land. Every single day along that path, that traveling, you were faced with these choices. Day in and day out, do I trust God do I trust something else? Do I continue to live my life as a servant of God or do I become a servant uh, to something else or become my own master? And eventually these relates... mess that decision up constantly. And even when they do get to the promised land, they find it's not simply uninhabited, right for the taking. It is, in fact, already occupied. And again, they're faced with another choice. Do I trust God to move in and take what he's promised to us? Or do I get afraid, put my focus on something else? It is a very harsh thing to think that uh, it took them 40 years to cross the desert into the promised land. And in fact, along that way, the entire generation of this nation, minus two people, died in that wilderness because they kept getting this one thing wrong. They kept making that wrong decision, and literally the desert was littered with their bodies. It's an incredible picture and very applicable to us being delivered from our bondage and sin, taken to the promised land, this ultimate eternity we have to look forward to. And and all along the way, we have these choices. Trust God or trust something else. So with that, we're going to uh, go into 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, moving from freedom to idolatry, something that the Israelites struggled with uh, constantly during their journey through the wilderness. And if you look at the very first word of chapter 10, it's it's a four. He's referring back to something else he had just said. And that's actually where we're going to start before we go into chapter 10. If you want to open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I apologize, I don't have any of the uh, scripture on the uh, screen up there. Uh, there should be a Bible ahead of you there. Just follow along, make things a whole lot easier and... Uh, a lot easier to follow, especially with this chapter. Some really good stuff in here. It's good to have it right in front of you. So chapter nine, verses twenty four to twenty seven. This is Paul saying to the Corinthians, Do you not know that all in a race that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Get that emphatic language. It just makes you want to take off out here and run a marathon, except for the fact that it takes a lot of training to do that. So you have this incredible call, this urge, this encouragement from Paul to the Corinthians to set your focus in the right place, to make your body your slave go into strict training to reach this goal, much like the Israelites should have been doing through the wilderness to get to the promised land. Look at the last verse, though. I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. It's a very negative sort of reinforcement and something that should give us pause to consider what exactly he is saying. In starting in chapter 10, he uses the Israelites as a metaphor. Those people who didn't put their body into strict training, who didn't get their focus in the right place and ended up being disqualified. They never reached the promised land. They instead dropped like flies in the desert. So with that, we're going to start with verse uh, 1 through 10 of chapter 10. This is uh, Paul using the Israelites as a metaphor and applying it directly to the situation that the Corinthian church uh, was in. So go ahead and turn there if you haven't already and follow along. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. That is not very encouraging at all. (laughs) And you think of the Corinthian church. What does their... Issue have to do with the idolatry of the Israelites. What does their issue in a supposedly very solid Christian spiritual church, filled with the freedom of Christ and spiritual gifts, how does this speak to them? And Paul is bringing out some very basic, very deep and broad truths to bear on their situation. See. Look at the first five verses. These are the freed covenant people of God taken out of slavery in Egypt. They were even baptized in this Old Testament sense through Moses and the passing of the Red Sea. They were the envy of the world. People looked at them and said, they've got a God who's guiding them to the promised land. And when they came across peoples, they were usually pretty terrified that the Israelites were at their doorstep. But most of them died in the desert. What could have possibly caused that? The covenant people of God To never even make it to the promised land. That's where verse 6 comes in. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. See, the idea in that verse is literally to to crave something, to crave something less than God, to be specific. This is nothing short of pure idolatry. put your priority and your focus and your effort and your attention into something other than God. That place in your life that only God should occupy, you place something that you feel is of greater importance in God's place. And idolatry like that expresses itself in a host of different ways. Look at the list he gives us in uh, verses 7 to 10. Um, There's actually a bunch of references here directly out of the Old Testament, directly out of that journey through the wilderness. The very first uh, verse there, or the example, is in verse 7. The reference is coming from Exodus 32, the uh, golden calf incident. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar. Moses, up on the mountain, talking with God, getting the law. God is beginning to shape and clearly define what his relationship with his people is going to look like. The people down at the foot of the mountain kind of wonder what happened to Moses. And Aaron gets the bright idea, let us worship God. They, uh, they ate and they drank. That is an expression. They were in, engaging in worship. Right? They were participating in sacrifices. But instead, they get a golden calf. And it's interesting. If you look at the language, the way they refer to the golden calf, they refer to it as the Lord the same way they would have referred to it as the God of the world, their own personal God. It wasn't just some little g God. They refer to that golden calf which just came into existence as the God who delivered them out of Egypt. I personally don't believe that they actually physically believe the golden calf was responsible for delivering them. I think they were worshiping God in a way that God had not ordained at all. And in fact, their attempt to worship God good as their intentions might have been, wound up being idolatrous and led them into some pretty terrible things. They literally sat down to eat and drink to engage in worship and got up to indulge in revelry. That is obviously not where worship was supposed to lead to. And then the next verse, verse 8, sexual immorality, again, is an expression of idolatry. We actually looked at this verse in particular, um, the reference out of uh, Numbers 21 through 25. What happened was, is these people took their focus off of God, ignored what God said not to do, and instead indulged in sexual immorality, worshipped the gods of the women they were engaged in, and completely forgot about God. They committed idolatry. So we have it expressing itself in worship of God that God didn't prescribe. We have it expressing itself in sexual immorality. Verse 9, the reference there is back to Numbers 21. The Israelites there were criticizing God for his lack of provision. Um, I don't know if you guys realize this, but every single day the Israelites were out there, they weren't uh, feasting off of the bounty of a barren wilderness. God was literally providing food, manna from heaven, and water. Miraculously providing for them every single day. And it simply wasn't good enough for them. They began to murmur and complain and criticize God. Why aren't you taking care of me the way that I want? Or what you're doing simply isn't good enough anymore. See, the attitude there is exactly the same. It's idolatry, putting your needs they were putting their desires above what God is doing for them. They took their focus off of God and stuck it on their problem. Lastly, verse 10, we've got grumbling. And in fact, nobody's quite sure of what exact reference this is referring back to because they did it so much. <laughs> yeah. But you think, why is grumbling part of a list of idolatry? What, I mean, this is, they're just whining, complaining a little bit. Why is this stuck right up beside sexual immorality and worshipping a golden cow? because the attitude's exactly the same. They took their attitude and their focus and their uh, dependence on God, they took it off of him, and they focused everything on the problem they were having. Right? They were simply not happy with the food anymore, for instance. Or they were worried about you know, the Philistines coming up to uh, invade them, or whatever the problem was, they took their focus off of God. They complained. They said, Moses, you don't know what you're doing. God, obviously, is not taking care of us the way we think he ought to. This isn't going to work out. And it's an idolatry. It's a big deal. Grumbling in their case was refusing to look at God and choosing deliberately to look at something else. Now, idolatry was obviously expressed in a lot of different forms. And this is a very, very small list of the things that they struggled with. But the issue is still the same. And Paul is taking their specific problem with idolatry and applying it to the Corinthian church. Now, how, how do you think that the Corinthians would have taken this? I mean, this is a very spiritual church. They were very free with their spiritual gifts. They were very prideful of their knowledge of Scripture and of Christ. Um, they refer to themselves constantly as being free in Christ and using that liberty to its fullest extent. These next verses, um, verses 11 downwards to 22, it gives these Corinthians a very bold slap in the face, saying that this issue of idolatry is very relevant to you. This is where we're going to go with next. I'm just going to read 11 to 22 for the next section. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are the many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrifice to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants of demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So this is where the danger of idolatry comes into play. Something so far removed from the Corinthian church, or at least so they thought, was a very real danger to them. And I personally believe just a greater danger to us today look back at uh, verses 11 and 12 these things happened to them as examples they were written down as warnings if you think you are standing firm be careful that you do not fall and in fact the verse right after that refers to this as a temptation that's a big deal the corinthians were in a very real danger of falling into the temptation of idolatry they weren't bowing down to a wooden idol or a golden cow but they were very guilty, or very close to being guilty, of a very modern form of that very thing. So even a church and the Christians in can't be safe from idolatry by being super spiritual, by looking like a Christian, by knowing your Bible. That's not good enough, quite frankly. See, modern idolatry is literally anything we place in God's place in our lives, something that we elevate to God's position, even if that is a good thing. It can be even expressed by the motivation behind our actions. Why do you do what you do? Is it for yourself or something else, for anything other than God? It's probably an idol, or at least an attitude of idolatry expressing itself somehow in your life. I mean, just to modernize what the Israelites did, Paul's list in 7 to 10, the Golden Calf incident, trying to worship God in a way that God is specifically not ordained, How often do you see that in churches today? How often do you see God getting left in the back pew while the the form of worship or the emphasis in worship is somewhere other than God? It's about self or teaching or music or anything other than God. Inherently good things, maybe. But if God is not being glorified directly by those things, it's very quickly a temptation to commit idolatry. Expressing sexual immorality, criticizing the Lord, grumbling, even whining about your life circumstances, and I know it happens to everybody, but to make that your attitude and your mindset, to take your focus deliberately off of God and to pour all your efforts into this problem could very easily lead you into idolatry. Uh, I've heard it said uh, that we are built for worship, like Pastor Dave said. And a good analogy to, to really emphasize that truth is our worship is like a fire hose stuck in the opposition. It is constantly blasting out, and there's no way to stop it. The only thing we can do is choose to point it in the right direction. We are always pouring ourselves, our attention, our time, our effort into something. It's just a matter of what that something is. Is it God or anything else? Now, this is where the seriousness of idolatry comes into play. Obviously, the temptation is there. It's very easy to slip into this. But what is the big deal? Why is this such a serious issue? Look at verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? This is referring to uh, worship. To eat the sacrifices, like the Old Testament children did with the golden calf incident, is to express your worship. And it doesn't stop there. Worship is not necessarily an end in of itself. You become a participant in the object of your worship. If you're worshiping God, you are participating with God in a very real sense. And in fact, he uses communion to illustrate that. Uh, the table here that we're going to participate in later, it is a very real participation with Christ. It is our deliberately remembering what he's done for us, and it is an act of worship. Now, to do something like that with Christ not being the object of your worship is to participate in something other than Christ. And in fact, Paul goes so far as to say that to partake of a meal to, in a sense of worship is in fact to worship a demon, to become a participant in a demon. What exactly that looks like, it's hard for me to say. And Corinthians is not always uh, incredibly clear on the finer details. I think the very least we can take from this is, it's a bad idea. Don't have anything to do with that. And in fact, this is a good time to note that uh, one of the big issues the Corinthians had was with food, I mean, of all things, of food going to maybe your boss's house. And they would offer food, pour the wine, give up the meat, and then he would engage in giving worship to the god of that wine or the idol the sacrificed uh, that the meat was sacrificed to now as a christian what do you do do you eat the food and participate in a worship and as paul would say have our participation with a demon as a result of that do you offend your boss and what's what is a christian to do and that's the specific incident that paul is trying to bear this issue of idolatry on now The idol is the issue, not the food. We need to keep that in mind. It's very easy to read this passage and get caught up with the food and the details on what are we supposed to do when we go to a Dinner for Eight group and somebody starts praying to an idol. That's not the issue, okay? (laughs) Hasn't happened yet, but if it does, this will be good. It's about the uh, the heart craving something other than God and our motivation for how we act. Are you participating in that meal to give glory to God because you want to look good for your boss? Are you participating in that to glorify the idol? or for some other reason. And that's where Paul starts getting into the, uh, the nitty-gritty of what to do in these situations. But first of all, pause and ask yourself, you're a Christian. Do you believe the idol is anything? No. Do you believe that the demon has any power over you? No. And if the food isn't anything, the idol isn't anything, and the demon isn't anything, what's the big deal why shouldn't you go to that dinner for eight group and eat the meat sacrificed to an idol what what does it matter that's where paul gets into next because the corinthians if you remember are very big on their freedom and so are we and this is america our freedom is of the highest importance and it should be people fought and died to give us that freedom That's not the highest good that there is, though. Paul is trying to get our attention on something much, much greater. Uh, Follow with me as I read the next section here, verses 23 to 30. Actually, I'm getting a little winded here. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. So eat any meat sold in the market without raising questions of conscience. For the the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Now, I'm referring to the other person's conscience and not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I partake in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something that I thank God for? And again, there's this issue. Yes, you're free in Christ. Yes, the idol doesn't mean anything. And if there's no mention of sacrifice or the idol or of worship or participating in demons by eating this, then go ahead. It's not a big deal. But as you're about to bite into that hamburger and says, hey, by doing that, you're worshiping an idol— you're not supposed to do it not because of your own freedom, but for the sake of their conscience. This is considering our goal. Why are we doing what we do? What is our motivation to participate in these sort of meals? And I know this is not very applicable on the surface, but let's look at the overall principle behind here. What is, what is the big idea Paul is trying to get across to these people? What is the issue? The issue of your motivation Is it in the right place or in the wrong place? Why are you doing what you do? Are you unwilling to limit your freedom to eat the food if you know it will lead somebody else into idolatry or to think less of God? He gives two examples. Those believers looking at you eating the food and also unbelievers looking at you eating the food. If you're going to eat the food and you know it's nothing, but that believer has a very weak conscience, not as firm in their faith, they see you by doing this. In their mind, he's committing idolatry. It must be okay for me to commit idolatry. It's not a big deal. I can worship this God. You have just led somebody down a very serious path. We just looked at how devastating the effects of idolatry are. How could you possibly exercise your freedom and lead somebody else into that by doing so? What is your motivation for participating in that meal or for by doing whatever it is you're doing that could potentially lead somebody down that road? Or take the other person the unbeliever looking at you he kind of nudges your elbows about to your uh, buy that meat in the marketplace it's like you know by eating that you're going to participate in the idol it was sacrificed to how is God getting glorified by making somebody else think you're worshiping something other than God See, it's not a question of freedom it is a question of your motivation are you worshiping doing everything you can possibly do to bring God honor and glory Or are you doing it just because you like to exercise your freedom and it's convenient? See, our lives are constantly being monitored. And I know it's hard to hear that we should potentially limit our own freedom, even if that thing that we're doing isn't necessarily sinful. We cannot allow ourselves to take our focus off of God or to give others the impression that we're doing something that lessens who God is. See, the Israelites had idolatry. They had a very big deal, a very big issue with that. It is a very serious issue if we lead somebody else into that same pattern. Now what's really cool is that the, uh, the solution to committing idolatry ourselves, like the Israelites did, and the solution to leading others into idolatry, as some of the Corinthians were doing, is the same thing. It is ultimately our goal, the goal of glory and good, more specifically the goal of God's glory and the good of others. This is where we're going to spend the, the rest of the passage, verses uh, 31 to 33. So whether you eat... Or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, or Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. That's what it all boils down to. Chapters 8, chapters 9, chapter 10 have all been leading up to this point. The issue is not about the food, the issue is about whether or not you're willing to give glory to God even if that means limiting your own freedom. Now, I don't want you to misread what I'm saying here. You do not cater to the weakest believer. Right? You do not allow somebody else's weak conscience dictate your life. You are essentially making that person your new idol by putting all of your focus and attention on that person instead of God. That is just a bigger problem. The issue is doing everything for the glory of God. Now, if you know that you're going to be leading somebody into idolatry, limit your freedom. That is what it really boils down to. And when I say causing somebody to stumble, this is not the Israelites on their way through the wilderness and they trip over a stone and they get back up and go along their merry ways if nothing had happened. The word to stumble there is a very big word. And I know the pastor touched on this a couple of weeks ago. It is referring to somebody who falls. When they fall, they fall so hard that when they hit the ground, they are broken and they cannot get up and their body is left to rot in the wilderness. That is how serious idolatry is to this person with a weak conscience watching you as they perceive worshiping an idol, giving attention to something other than God, and leading them into it by your example. That is a huge deal. See, this is not about your freedom. It's not about their conscience. It's about giving glory to God. Is God glorified by causing somebody to stumble to that extent? Absolutely not. So, The general principle could be looked at in a whole bunch of different ways, giving glory to God. Let's um, take last week. Um, I believe the issue of uh, receiving payment for preaching came up. Um, Paul argues very extensively, um, very convincingly, that yes, for doing what he was doing, for teaching the Corinthians, he had the right to claim compensation for his services. And it's funny, because after arguing so strongly on that point, he says, but I'm going to limit my freedom and I don't want you all to give me anything. In fact, I'm telling you, don't you dare give me a cent. He believed for the sake of the gospel it was going to be furthered by not accepting from these people. He believed God was better glorified by not taking any money from these people. And it's curious because in a whole other instance, the church at uh, Philippi, he not only accepts money, but asks for compensation. And I believe in the same instance, he's doing it because it furthers the gospel, because he is able to give God honor and glory by continuing his work, and to do so, in that particular case, he was accepting compensation. It's the same principle. Paul's motivation, give glory to God in everything that you do. In this case, it's expressed by not accepting money. In another case, it's expressed by accepting money. And if I could take it even a step further... I suspect Paul would never accept a dime if he knew somebody else was going to look at that and say, Oh, Paul's worshiping money. Maybe I could get involved in preaching because it looks like a lucrative business. It sounds extreme, and yes, it is, but I mean, even in Corinthians, he says he's willing to never eat meat again if he knows it's going to cause somebody to stumble in such an extreme way that we've looked at. Paul is not concerned with the meat, he's not concerned with the money, he's concerned solely with giving glory to God. Is the exact opposite of idolatry. That is what his life is consumed with. He's so focused on God. Limiting his freedom doesn't seem to matter a whole lot to him. That is an incredible mindset to have. It is an incredible worshipful lifestyle. Something that we need to aspire after. Something that we have to put our bodies into strict training to get. It is not easy. I'm not by any means saying that it's easy to live this way. But it's necessary. So idolatry I I hope you can at least a little bit more clearly see it's not an issue of bowing down to a statue it's not so far removed as the Israelites bowing down to the golden calf or by doing all those terrible things that they do to forget about God and ignore his commands it is just a realistic temptation to us as it was to the Corinthians and as it was to the Israelites and it's also just as dangerous absolutely essential that we fight that temptation with every fiber of our being. I mean, if you go back to what we read over earlier, that there is a way out of these temptations, and I believe what Paul is leading up to in these last verses of the chapter is that way out of temptation is to do everything for the glory of God, whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, everything you do should be motivated by wanting to give God the glory that he is due. So exercise your freedom when it means God will be glorified sometimes limit your freedom when it means God will be glorified. That is what everything boils down to. With that, let's uh, just go ahead and close in prayer and just let these things sink in. Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much for, for your word and just how incredible you are and how glorified you are when we forsake all else except you when we pour all of our attentions and our time and our effort and all of our concerns into you and nothing else uh, i humbly ask that you help us to do that and that you remind us and put us in check when we start to stray into that serious temptation of idolatry when we let our problems become more important than to you or or allow our circumstances take precedence over keeping our focus on you i just thank you so much that you have given us a way out and that It is a call that you can help us to live, to give you honor and glory through everything that we do. I ask all this in your name. Amen.